to the Refinitive Sustainability Perspectives podcast. This is Kisa Shreen. We're hearing the valid rationale that it's not as feasible for smaller economies or developing economies to make the same climate changes at the same pace as developed countries because they may not have the resources and the historical advantages that developed markets have. Many sustainability and ESG stakeholders say that support is needed in this area. Today, South Africa stands to benefit from $8.5 billion over the next three to five years in partnership with regions such as the UK, the USA, and the EU. There's a lot to dig into around partnerships in general and around some of the activities happening in South Africa. So today, we'll speak with South African business leader, Jonathan Oppenheimer, executive chairman of Oppenheimer Generations, to get his feedback on partnerships and opportunities as well as risks in the region. Jonathan's career includes N.M. Rothschild & Sons, as well as De Beers, where he held a number of senior management roles in Southern Africa and London, and where his family has quite a legacy, and we're going to get into that. He's currently also on the Board of Trustees of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, an organization focusing on advancing the cause of peace through its global network of policy research centers. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Gisa. It's great to see you and it was, uh, sort of great to carry on the conversation from last time. Exactly. And you know what? You and I, we did grab coffee, I guess, a couple of months ago now. And you mentioned talking about your family's work, the successes, the failures. And that can be quite a challenging conversation, um, to say the least. It was. <laughs> it was. And one of the things you share with me is that you tend to meet those conversations head on. And so, you know, I know that a lot of our listeners are probably thinking some of the same things that your other counterparts and those you've been engaged with have thought about, wanted to ask about. So why don't we just talk initially about what your family's work consisted of in the past and how that impacts the work that you're doing today? Absolutely. And uh, try and keep it as short as possible. You're inviting me to talk for about three hours, and I know you don't want that. So, so the reality of it is my, my great-grandfather started our business, or really founded Anglo-American in 1917. And that was a big mining company, which then became a diversified conglomerate in South Africa and across Southern Africa and then globally. We were heavily involved in that, operated that for, for until my grandfather really retired in the mid-80s, and then my father was involved, but uh, not at the, as chairman, but just as a senior executive. And come 2000, we really were beginning to realize that as family, we, we liked being operators and we were no longer operators. So my father led uh, the take private of De Beers, the diamond mining company. We did that in partnership with Anglo-American. And from 2001 till 2012, the family ran De Beers. And I think it was a truly extraordinary time. Sold it in 2012 back to Anglo-American. And post-2012 has really been the next chapter of the Oppenheimer family's life. And that's been focused on trying to create businesses that are generational in nature, sustainable in nature, and make a meaningful and permanent contribution to the people we work with. And that's been thematic of the family's approach to business for as long as I can remember and, and as long as I understand our family history. So let's talk about the S, if we look at ESG, the social component. And I know that many times if you look at the diamond industry overall, that's something that a lot of people point to um, and some of the issues there. So I'd like to start with that. 
first of all, would like to get your thoughts just on the S in general as it relates to that industry, if you've seen changes. And then switching gears, want to get your thoughts about how we can inject capital, specifically in region and in South Africa, the best way to inject capital as it relates to a sustainable society, whether that be microfinance and whether it be looking at alternative sectors. What are your thoughts around um, you know, your area of expertise in your particular industry and then other ways, meaningful ways to inject capital into society there? So uh, firstly, just so for, for clarity's sake, as a family, we are out of the mining business since 2012. So no longer have any exposure to, to the extractive businesses. However, the thematic of the S, as you call it, society, actually, I can trace way back to before the Second World War, when the family were involved in the development of the copper belt. And my great-grandfather said something which was truly interesting. If you're going to be involved in business and I put big inverted commas around it, forever, you need to think about educating your workforce. You need to think about the well-being of your workforce. You need to think about the community you draw that workforce from. You need to think about the ecology of the environment you're in because the last thing you want to do is poison your groundwater and then have to spend huge amounts of money cleaning it to feed your people. And so the longer the time horizon of a business, the more thoughtful that business is about integrating into the environment it's in. If I trade with you for 30 seconds and I never need to see you again in my life, I can rip you off. If we're going to have marriage of 20 years, I can't afford to piss you off. I mean, Kisa, you and I can, can have a conversation. And if I never see you again, you can hate me for the rest of my life. But if I want to see you again every day for the next 10 years, we're going to have to be honest with each other. And I think that's something that is often lost. The longer the time horizon of a business, the more engaged it is in the environment it operates if it intends to be there forever. If it's a, a short-term in-and-out game, different story. And I think for me, it was most typified in 1954, my great-grandfather said, so think about that, that's 68 years ago, nearly 70 years ago. And only how long ESG is now the conversation, maybe the last five, 10 years. He said, we're here to make a profit. If you don't make a profit, you don't survive. So we're here to make a profit, but in such a way as to benefit the peoples and communities with whom we operate. That was in 1954. And that was simply the, the verbalization, the codification of something that we'd started doing in the 1920s. So ESG to me is, is not something that's new. It's something that's very much an integral and essential part of any business's DNA, or rather, I should say, any business that intends to be around for the long term's DNA. And I love the, the thought of that, a business's DNA. It, it seems very interconnected. So we have the economic aspect. We also have the social aspect, the human capital aspect. And it seems that th those are the conversations that you all had as business leaders. And the environmental aspect, if I can interrupt. And the environmental aspect, absolutely. And just the interrelatedness of those. And, and I'm wondering, if we look at those types of relationships and then mirror that against the relationships that businesses have with other entities, like not-for-profits, like an endowment, foundations, even government. What types of partnership successes have you seen in terms of your work in the endowment not-for-profit sector and in terms of what's going on um, in South Africa that you've been a part of in terms of those partnerships? What does success look like and what should the aspiration be for the region? I see it in, in two separate parts. Uh, the first part is where have we focused in our own philanthropic activities as a family and as an institution 
and then secondly, where other institutions have, have prospered. And in the first instance, we believe that the giving of money without the ambition of an economic return is best focused at catalyzing change. So if you can imagine a journey towards a more sustainable position, you can catalyze that change by basically being a social VC fund. And that's how I see philanthropic money. It, it needs to go in to catalyze behavioral change, catalyze technology change to move to a greener economy, catalyze to engage people in an educational process. Whatever it happens to be, it needs to be catalytic. There are philanthropic institutions out there that have done extraordinarily good work, but where they have funded and continue to fund activities. And there I'm always a little wary from my own personal perspective because the institution that they support is then dependent on the generosity of the founder. There's no permanence in it. And it, you'll, you'll see the theme in my, everything I talk about is about permanence. It's about longevity. It's about generational success and, 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 and impact. And what about the the government's role? I mean, I know that we're talking about philanthropy and we're talking about business and working together. Do, do they, in your mind, have a role here? And if so, what would that be? So I think government has a huge role to play, but it it sometimes confuses its role. Government's role is to frame the environment it wants the nation to develop in. It needs to frame how you treat your people. It needs to frame how you treat the environment. And then it needs to create the space by framing those as outcomes, not as a series of tight regulations that say, you know, you go to your office by walking three steps forward and then two to the left and then three to the right and then three forward and two back and then one to the right. If they are as prescriptive as that, then there's no space for innovation. There's no space for catalytic change. There's no space to make the green economy infinitely more competitive than the, the dirty economy. And so government's role is in setting how you should treat people, how you should look after and, and husband the environment, and then create the space for business to innovate inside the box. And it is a vital role. It's a critical role. It's a role that I think governments miss more often than not. When politicians start thinking that they can influence the very short term by dictating X or Y, then we have a problem. And I think the, the polarization that we are seeing around the world, whether it's in the US, whether it's in Europe, or even here, between, just call it the polarization of politics, is at its core about a shorter and shorter term prescriptive path, rather than finding common unity in society about aiming at, at, at a long-term goal. Climate has shifted from the margins of finance to the mainstream. The financial system has a crucial part to play in achieving economy-wide decarbonization and transitioning to a net-zero economy. Discover how the London Stock Exchange Group is enabling the global financial markets to achieve sustainable growth with our unique ecosystem of sustainable finance solutions and insights at lsat.com forward slash net zero podcast. How successful do you think that the South African region, specifically the business sector, how successful have they been so far at taking this long-term view that you propose? I think that it would be wonderful if business was homogeneous. And you could say, oh, business has been successful or business has been unsuccessful. There are businesses 
across the world, and there are many here in South Africa that are the unsung heroes, that are generational in nature and have extraordinary relationships with their communities where they are making enormous contributions to the well-being of hundreds of thousands of people. And then there are other businesses that are much more short-term in their outlook, much more usury, and are doing extraordinary harm. And I think it is an investor's job to look at those and make that judgment call. Do I pursue super returns through an exploitative business opportunity, or do I pursue good returns for a very long time through a sustainable contributing business? And to ask you to put on your investing hat, to put on your hat in the endowment, are there specific sectors or areas in your region that you found to be most compelling to really, again, have that long-term theme that you would say, now, this is where the opportunity lies? So it's funny that you ask it because this is a debate I was having with some of my senior leaders literally yesterday. And we were talking about, is Nigeria a good investment destination? And the answer is, Nigeria is complicated. There are pockets within Nigeria that are great op- investment opportunities. We just, as a, as a family, got uh, ourselves into a position where we uh, have a, a business in Nigeria which we control. And it's super exciting. It's super, there's great growth opportunity. And we're, we're convinced we can take this business to a position where it is competitive in Nigeria, competitive in Africa, and absolutely competitive in the world. And we're really excited by it. It, In the same breath, if you offered me an opportunity personally and uh, to invest in oil and gas in Nigeria, I would be quite reticent. So it sounds like opportunities on one end, but then to be very mindful of where the challenges might be is probably the best investment um, opportunity there is. (laughs) And to not think of it as geographic. You have to think about it in a in an integrated holistic approach. So it's not so the business we own is in light goods manufacturing, light goods manufacturing, serving a two hundred million people market, two hundred plus million people market. Great opportunity. Oil and gas with excessive government oversight and rent seeking against it in a very concentrated form, not such a good opportunity. And they both occur in the same geography, which is Nigeria. So if we if we think about that, and, and I love that we can look at it that way, let's not look, think about geography, but let's think a little broader than that. What are some of the primary differences between how the region, the South Africa region, needs to approach climate and social change? Should we all be looking at that from the same space? Is it really, we all need to do the same thing? We all need to be reading from the same hymn book? Or are there differences? And does South Africa, do you think that there are some key differences in the way they should approach it as opposed to simply looking to the UN or looking to one global authority to approach it? Let me throw a little quick stat at you, which is quite interesting. A sort of medium industrialized country the sort of rule of thumb that I've always been taught by all the experts I talk to is a thousand megawatts of power per million people is the necessary amount of power to support a middle income country. In Africa, we have, so South Africa is at about 500 megawatts per million people right now. Actually, with the power crisis we've got right now, we're lower than that. But we have installed capacity roughly 1,000 megawatts per per million people. We've got 40-odd thousand megawatts of installed capacity, and we've got a population of 55 million people. If you go to Nigeria, they've got a population of 200, 210 million people, and I stand under correction, but they have less than 10,000 megawatts of installed capacity. 
So you're looking at five megawatts of power per million people. That's pretty much non-existent power for the vast majority of Nigerians. So if you start talking about uplifting the economy, you need to produce more power. There's a great opportunity in this, and there's a great risk. There's a great risk because it's expensive, but there's this great opportunity if we can reduce the cost to leapfrog Africa ahead of the rest of the world by basically missing the carbon creation of energy. We can go straight to green, but we need to reduce the capital cost of green dramatically to do that, whether it's solar, whether it's wind, you know, what other renewable energies are out there, hydrogen, we need to leapfrog generationally to the equivalent of 5G from landlines, because that's the opportunity that Africa has, because we just don't have the infrastructure. But it does mean, and it goes back to the point that you you, you touched on really at the beginning of the conversation, it does go back to this, this very essence of releasing capital to Africa and getting a return for that capital. Because capital, sadly, unless it's philanthropic or, or donor money, which is concessionary, demands a return. So how do we get to a position where the capital that is flowing to Africa achieves a necessary return that from a risk-adjusted perspective, people want to send it to Africa? You can't force capital to go anywhere. It's a coward. You have to entice it. And we need to find the right way to entice capital to Africa and entice it against doing the right things. Green energy, socially responsible programs which look after our people, creating the opportunity for our people in the continent, in South Africa here, across the whole continent, to feel that their lives are getting better. And they need to be getting better. What else can we do to entice capital, i.e., entice the owners of capital, of assets. Isn't the message already clear? Hasn't, I mean, what else can we possibly say that we haven't said before to entice capital? It's not so much what's said, it's what's done. So I have an investment vehicle. I'll share this with your listeners. I have an investment vehicle here in South Africa where we want to invest permanently in businesses in Africa. And in the last five years, we've deployed about $500 million, which is real money. Our team who uh, do the scanning for investments, has looked at over 500 transactions. And our return on capital, because it's com- we're, we're obsessed with compounding and operational yield rather than balance sheet growth, is relatively low rel- uh, compared to our, our peer group. And we've looked at 500 investments. We found 10 that meet our financial criteria. That's scary. And that means that people are overvaluing the balance sheets. They aren't truly looking at the intrinsic value that is created in the P&L or the income statement that you guys would call it in the States. And it's really, really important to think about businesses that are sustainable in their operations, not in how a PE firm chooses to value them. And the more you can build these businesses that produce goods and services and service this exciting growing population, which is going from, what, 1.1 billion people today to 2.2, 2.3 billion by 2050, an urban population which is going from 450 million people to 1.2 billion people by 2050, if you can service them and give them goods and services which make their lives better, then by definition, you will have great extremely profitable, sustainable businesses that meet these social criteria. The piece that we need to really now start focusing on is make sure that they also meet the ecological requirements of not doing harm to the world. 
So looking at things from a long-term perspective, which would include looking at sustainable operations and really seeing the interconnectedness between climate, environment, governance, which we talked a bit about. 100%. Yeah, as well as our impacts of how we run our businesses on the environment. Jonathan Oppenheimer, such a great conversation as always. Thank you so much for joining us. Coffee next time I'm in New York. Okay, coffee on on you next time. On me. Thank you. Thanks so much. We invite you to subscribe to the Refinitive Sustainability Perspectives podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you stream your content. What did you think about the podcast? Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for updates on our show. Thank you for joining and see you next time.